You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Bloodgroove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Jacob, Griffin, Justin, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, James, Gingrich, Lisa, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitluck, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we're going to return to the Indian Ocean and the Pirates of the Round. It's important to remember, though, that this was a relatively small group of men, and as far as I can tell, they were all men at this point, but they almost all knew each other and had worked together at some point. Today we're going to focus on a few of those names, all of whom we've met before, at least briefly. In part, our job here today is to reintroduce them, but more than that, it's to put them in place for the drama that is about to unfold when all of their lives intersect dramatically. This is episode 257, The Mocha. Our story begins today during the Second Pacific Adventure, That whole episode was really a seminal event for the Pirates of the Round, but specifically for the English Pirates of the Round. And this story is really an English story, which is not to say that there weren't pirates of other nationalities running around out there. There were, absolutely. There were Dutch and even Portuguese pirates operating in the Indian Ocean, which is to say nothing about the non-European pirates. There were Indonesian and Malay, Chinese, Malagasy, Arabic, African pirates all through this story. But there were two big differences between the English and everyone else out there. The scale of the piracy was different. Most of the non-English pirates, even the Dutch and the Danes out there, well, they were going after smaller prizes. 
you know, merchantmen or fishermen or anyone with some supplies and a little bit of cargo to sell back at home. They weren't the kind of scores that would make you rich. You couldn't retire on it. It was workmanlike, day-to-day kind of piracy. It's as close to an honest living as you're going to get for pirates. The second difference, though, the thing that really sets the English apart is the media coverage. Thanks to the larger size of some of these ships targeted by some of these English pirates, they became worldwide news stories that created worldwide manhunts and their crimes were decried in cities worldwide. But these very few high-profile attacks led to all of that media coverage that led to higher sales for papers and for books and more and more coverage, but coverage for less and less worthwhile pirate raids. No one in this era of the pirate round ever hit a score as big as the guns weigh again, but you've got these newspapers looking for the next big story that would tell you that this pirate or that pirate was the next big thing, the big scary monster. And of course, they never were quite as scary. But as some of you probably noticed, I've left out the other major player in the pirate game. What about the French? Well, there were a ton of French raiders out there. But for this period of our story, for the pirates of the round in the 1690s, they weren't pirates, they were privateers. You know, Tortuga was still a hub of vice and sin, as was more and more Reunion Island. There were sailors drinking away all of their plundered goods, and it looks a lot like piracy. It basically was, but they were licensed. They had letters of mark that allowed them to go out there and attack mostly the English. This was, after all, wartime. And really, that's why you don't have many French pirates, because they were allowed to attack the English. That was enough for them. You know, they didn't need to attack Mughal shipping or their fellow Frenchmen because the English East India Company alone, but also all of the private merchants out there, well, that provided more than enough plunder for the French. Now, where were we? Yeah, the Second Pacific Adventure. There's a reason that when Daniel Defoe penned his fictional autobiography of Henry Every, he placed Every on that pirate cruise. The Pacific Adventures, and the Second Pacific Adventure in particular, were big deals. Virtually every English pirate who was sailing the seas in the 1680s was on board. And of course, you know, we've covered them in some depth here on the show, but if you'd like to read a different perspective on it, there's actually a new book about to be released on the subject. It's called Born to be Hanged by Keith Thompson. Great title, by the way. But, you know, this isn't a clandestine ad or anything. They were kind enough to send me an advanced copy of the book, and it's pretty great. I kind of wish I'd had it for that additional perspective when we were talking about the Pacific Adventure. But it's not out of the question to think that all of the pirates we're going to talk about today, men who were, keep in mind, important enough on board their ships to be noticed in the historic record, it's not out of the question that they were on board the Pacific Adventure at some point. And we know that at least one of them was. That would be James Kelly. 
James Kelly sailed under the pirate captain John Eaton on one of the three biggest ships on the Second Pacific Adventure. He transferred over to Bachelor's Delight under Edward Davis around the same time that William Dampier transferred over to the Signet. At the end of the Pacific Adventure, once Bachelor's Delight was in America, when Edward Davis left the crew, George Rayner took command of the ship and James Kelly was elected her quartermaster. Rayner and Kelly and Bachelor's Delight were among that second wave of Pirates of the Round, following in the wake of Thomas II's first cruise in the region. Their own cruise was not particularly noteworthy except for the capture of an East India Company brig called Unity. James Kelly took command of the Unity and brought with him a Ralph Stout who served as quartermaster. They had a few small successes, nothing noteworthy again, but then they went ashore at the Malabar coast to collect wood and water. That's the coastline on the southwest of India, and it was not yet under English influence. It was still under Dutch influence. While James Kelly and Ralph Stout and several others were on shore, they were arrested by the Dutch authorities. But since they were English, they were handed over to the English East India Company at Bombay. Bombay, of course, is a colonial anachronism. Today it's called Mumbai, but since the characters we know would have referred to it as Bombay, that's how we'll refer to it here. James Kelly and Ralph Stout were sent to a large prison complex there on Bombay, while George Rayner sailed for St. Mary's off the coast of Madagascar. After which he returned to America, and here things get a little bit tricky. It's sometimes often, in fact, written that George Rayner renamed the Bachelor's Delight Loyal Jamaica when he sailed for the Carolina colony. But you will also find other sources saying that James Kelly was in fact captain of the Bachelor's Delight. It's difficult to suss out what really happened here, but in the end it doesn't really matter. George Rayner arrived in Carolina, James Kelly was in that prison in Bombay, and the Bachelor's Delight was, one way or another, lost. Probably she was scuttled in St. Augustine Bay. About a year after James Kelly was imprisoned in 1693, another group of pirates arrived in the region, and this is a group that we should know fairly well by now. That group of pirates who became pirates during a mutiny against Captain William Kidd on board the Blessed William. That group included William May, Edward Coates, Samuel Burgess, and Robert Culliford. Culliford is the name to remember here today, but we should of course all remember William May as well. This 1693 cruise is when some of the men from the pirate ship Pearl which would go on to sail with Henry Every, with William May as captain on his famous voyage, but when some of the crew, including Robert Culliford, were captured at Mangral on the northwest coast of India. One of the other men arrested, one of Robert Culliford's companions, is also worthy of note here. John Swan had been a long-time companion of Robert Culliford, and there has, for Many years now been speculation and debate regarding the nature of their relationship. Were they friends or lovers or maybe life partners? 
a lot of pirates had same-sex life partners. That came with a contract that allocated their shares and their lifetime savings in the event of a tragic death. These relationships often, although not always, had a romantic component. It was, in the eyes of everybody but the law, a marriage, but it was called, and still is, a metalotage. That's a French word that I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, but it meant a partnership for life at sea. Naturally, though, these kind of agreements have generated some controversy. When you talk about historical figures and homosexuality, there tend to be two extremes to which people gravitate. It's either A, they couldn't have been gay. As everyone knows, homosexuality was invented in the 1950s by godless communists in an effort to undermine the American birth rates so the Reds could win the Cold War. Or B, they were definitely gay, like super gay, because everyone was gay. As we all know, heterosexuality is a facade created by our patriarchal overlords to create a market for, I don't know, bras and meat and makeup and ties, I guess. You know, obviously this is hyperbole. It's extremely exaggerated hyperbole. I don't think anybody actually holds those kind of opinions. But the debates on sexuality and historical figures tend to sound almost that ridiculous. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. You know, in some cases, we have documentary evidence of someone's sexual preferences. And in that case, it's pretty clear. But most of the time, we really can't say. You know, Alexander the Great and Frederick the Great were likely gay, or at least some shade of not quite straight. Napoleon and Julius Caesar likely weren't. But, you know, it doesn't matter. Who cares about any of that? Because what's important about all four of those names is that they shaped the world by the sheer force of their will and the giant armies they commanded. What's important isn't who they loved, but what they did as a historical figure. Sometimes a person's sexuality will impact that, but not in those cases and not in this case. For our purposes, what matters is that Robert Culliford was a brilliant sailor, a talented officer, and one hell of a pirate. So now we've got James Kelly, Robert Culliford, John Swan, and Ralph Stout all in the same prison in Bombay. That's 1694. In 1695, of course, Henry Every arrives with his fleet, including Thomas II's Amity and William May's Pearl, and they attack the Mocha fleet. We should all be very familiar with that story. But we should also remember what followed. After most of those pirates left the region, a few stuck around, and they began to play a kind of a game of musical chairs among their ships and their captains of those ships all of which was centered around St. Mary's Island and Adam Baldridge. It was here that John Ireland, the sailing master on board Thomas II's Amity, took command of the Amity after Thomas II died. John Ireland is an interesting case, largely because he would give an in-depth testimony some years later. Actually, now that I think about it, so did James Kelly. In this case, though, John Ireland's account matches perfectly that of Adam Baldridge. Namely, that Baldridge told John Ireland about the ship Charming Mary, 
under Captain Richard Glover, which was lying at anchor at St. Augustine Bay, a ship which John Ireland stole and gave the amity to Captain Glover so he could get home. The crew, though, elected Richard Bobbington as the captain of their new ship, Charming Mary. Ireland, at least according to the testimony he gave, didn't want the job. He said that he had been a mostly unwilling participant in all of this, and I tend to actually believe him about that. When he did take a leading role, such as leading the Amity and taking the Charming Mary, these were actions taken to save his own life, because their ship was unable to make it home to America, and he had a family. All of these names are about to become very important. You know, we've heard most of these stories, at least a bit of them, before. But the reason I'm bringing them up is because all of their paths are about to converge, along with that of Captain William Kidd, on and surrounding a frigate called the Mocha. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The Mocha Frigate is one of those ships that... Well, you know how you'll just run into certain names over and over again when reading history? You know, even before I'd considered the idea of doing a show like this, I read a lot of history, because I'm a cool guy that does cool guy stuff. But a lot of that history was maritime history and pirate history, And the Mocha Frigate is one of those names that pops up over and over again. And not only when it's being talked about explicitly, but it's used as an example. You know how smart people will often allude to things like Greek mythology? Or, really, if we're being honest here, you know how people, less smart people, writing a smart character, will often allude to Greek mythology to make their characters sound smart. Well, you know, I don't know a lot of Greek mythology. It's never been something that really gripped me before. But even so, I've still heard those names enough to pick up some of the context. I know, for example, a bit about Prometheus and Icarus, although I've never read their myths. Another good example would be great battles in history. You know, even if you don't actually know anything about Cani or Verdun or Stalingrad you've probably picked up through hearing those names that they were not a good time for anyone involved. It's just cultural osmosis. And then, of course, there are ships. I think the Potemkin is a ship often used as an example, or maybe the Bounty. Or 
oftentimes in the same context, the Mocha Frigate. All three ships have something, one big something in common. But in my experience, the Mocha Frigate has always just been this kind of great lurking thing in the background, and it represents the worst of the Age of Sail. That's due largely to the captain of the Mocha Frigate, a man named Leonard Edgecombe. Officially speaking, Leonard Edgecombe was an amazing captain, but that's because the officials who were writing those reports and the officials who were reading those reports really only cared about results. They didn't care what happened to the men who actually had to do all the work. Edgecombe was smart, bordering on brilliant. He was talented, and he was well-versed in naval combat. But he was also brutal and unforgiving. And towards one's enemies, that might not be honorable, even in a time of war, but it was at least respectable. But Captain Edgecombe was brutal and unforgiving toward his subordinates as well. Even the smallest mistakes on board could be met with a lashing at the mast, or maybe he would just have you killed. See, Captain Edgecombe was a lot of things, but he was very likely insane. Thus far in his career, he'd done quite well as a captain. He began his captain career with the Hudson's Bay Company, a private English joint stock company operating on the Atlantic coast of Canada. And there, prior to the war, he engaged in frequent conflict with the French in Canada. He was, in fact, reprimanded for those frequent conflicts and may have had a hand in inciting the war that was to come, although the Nine Years' War was going to come one way or another. But when the war broke out, a man of those talents was an asset. He was given a ship and a letter of mark and free reign. Captain Edgecombe's track record in the early years of the war was a resounding success, a profitable resounding success. He turned up with ships and cargo, all for the Admiralty, all the time. Which was, of course, what they wanted. But they could only use those ships and sell that cargo after they'd cleaned up all the blood. Edgecombe was in the habit of killing everyone on board. It was effective, absolutely. But these weren't warships he was attacking. These were private merchants. He was supposed to take their cargo, not murder dozens of innocent men. It was skirting the law at best, and it made him a liability to the company. So Captain Edgecombe was let go. But of course, his many, many successes were not just going to be ignored. Halfway around the globe, there was another private English joint stock company that had need of men like Edgecombe. In the Indian Ocean, the rules were less strict, and the East India Company wasn't keen on enforcing even those unless they were forced to. The one big rule was that you cannot mess with the Mughal's ships, but anyone else pirates, or even Indians, or the French, absolutely, you can go ahead and kill all of them. And Edgecombe was good at his job. But there is... Well, did you all get to watch Our Flag Means Death on HBO? It's a show about pirates, about Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard, but it's a comedy, 
It was okay. There were things I liked about it. I liked Taika Watiti. But I really can't even watch that kind of show. I mean, I'm just going to complain all the time. Because they took liberties. And some of those liberties I'm okay with. It's historical fiction. I'm not going to complain about every little inaccuracy. But there were some that I was not okay with. And there are spoilers ahead if you do plan on watching the show, but my short review here is that you should not watch this show. Near the end of the series, Edward Teach says that he's just so tired of being Blackbeard, of being a pirate, of all the pressure that that entails, that he's willing to take a job with the Navy to get out of it. That Blackbeard would take a job with the government, the government that he hated so much he would become a pirate, that infuriated me. It wasn't just historical inaccuracy, it was missing the point of the man and the character and everything he ever stood for. In real life, Edward Teach turned down an act of grace that is a pardon given by the king because he wanted to stay on the account. And they even talk about acts of grace on that show. Now, they get it totally 100% wrong, but the fact is that Blackbeard would never have done what he did in that show, and to suggest that he would makes him not just a bad historical fiction character, it makes him not Blackbeard at all. The other thing about that show that annoyed me was, and it's a small, petty thing, I know, but a complete misunderstanding of the nature and building blocks of what the golden age of piracy is. In the very first episode, the pirate crew of Pirate Captain Steed Bonnet say they're planning a mutiny. Later on, Blackbeard talks about all of the beatings he has to hand out to his crew, and after that, Israel Hands, his quartermaster, becomes this vile tyrant on board the ship. All of that is wrong. There was... Almost never such a thing as a mutiny on board a pirate ship. Plenty of times the captain was voted out of office, but rarely was there a mutiny. That also means that there were rarely vile tyrant captains among the pirates, or pirate captains who could hand down beatings with impunity. All of it wrong. And these are not small things. This is about what pirates are, and you're getting it wrong. It is a gross misrepresentation, and I dislike that show very much. Now, that kind of brutality, those depredations, the despair that they describe, did exist in the Age of Sail. They were experienced by a lot of sailors, but not pirates. Those were experienced by men on board ships like the Mocha. The best description of Captain Edgecombe's actions at sea come from the surgeon on board the Mocha. His name was John Leckie. Now, Leckie had over a decade of experience as a surgeon on board Royal Naval vessels, and Edgecombe believed that Leckie was trying to kill him. When I said Edgecombe was insane, I was referring to his psychopathic tendencies to torture and murder people, yes, but also his paranoia. He made a slave taste his food to ensure that it had not been poisoned by the doctor, he had at least one cook killed, suspecting that he was in league with the doctor. He tortured the doctor's assistants to get evidence of his plans to poison him, 
and he had the doctor flogged with a cat of nine tails for his attempts, non-existent attempts, to poison Captain Edgecombe. All of that happened. Finally, Captain Edgecombe's delusions came to a head. He had Lecky dragged to the deck and stripped down to the waist. Then Captain Edgecombe drew his sword and began to beat the surgeon with the flat of the blade. As we know, this punishment can result in little nicks and less insignificant cuts. Soon, Dr. Lecky was basically covered in his own blood, lying on the deck trying to shield his face from the blows of the sword. He was in severe pain and probably about to be killed by the madman he had for a captain. When the opportunity presented itself, Dr. Lecky stood up and punched Captain Leonard Edgecombe. Now, as I see it, that's the right of anybody who's about to be unjustly murdered. But as the world at the time saw it, a ship's captain was the law. He was the highest authority on that ship, and what Lecky had done was treason. Captain Edgecombe ordered the surgeon Keel hauled for this impertinence. You remember what keel hauling is, right? That's when they wrap a long rope around the entire hull of the ship. They tie one end of that rope to your hands and another to your feet, and then they pull on the rope, dragging you around the hull, down into the water, over the rough wood, the splinters, and the barnacles, cutting deep into your skin, letting salt water seep into your wounds, and then eventually dragging you back up. It was a nightmarish torture. And the crew of the Mocha agreed. They refused to do this to the doctor. This almost turned into a mutiny right there. I mean, it kind of was. They were refusing a direct order from the captain. The only reason I can see that it did not turn to violence right there was because they were less than a day from Bombay. When the Mocha frigate arrived at Bombay, fully half the crew left her decks. Captain Edgecombe might have punished them or stopped them, but had he tried to do so, he probably would have been killed. But this put the Mocha frigate and Captain Leonard Edgecombe in dire straits. He needed crewmen, and he had several ways to acquire crewmen there in Bombay, and we'll talk about all of them next time, but most important were nine crewmen that he picked up, willing volunteers to his ship, under the leadership of a sailor called Samson Marshall. What, I'm getting the feeling you're all not shocked by this sudden reveal. Oh, God, I forgot. Samson Marshall was really James Kelly. Those nine men had all just broken out of prison there at Bombay. Next time, Mutiny. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended us to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews that help get the show noticed. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to listen to some of their other fine shows, like... And you know, I've been kind of cycling through all of the history shows, and they've got a very good selection of history shows. 
but there's a wide variety of non-history-related content, and I'm probably going to stick to the history content because I know that that's something you're at least interested in on some level, but if you're interested in movies or psychology or they've got a show called Wild Black about the black experience, it's worth checking out. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can always check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight